At some point in the course of my PhD, I made the decision to pursue a career as a college professor with a focus on teaching. Unfortunately for me, this is not an easy move to make from postdoctoral research scientist. At least it hasn't been for me. What does it mean to be a great teacher? It seems to me that the focus must be on the best interest of the students in terms of the subject of the course. Thus it can be seen as a kind of service. Bright young people who qualify and are interested assemble in the lecture hall or the laboratory in order to gain access to knowledge and the means of acquiring it. The means of acquiring knowledge is a more comprehensive thing than might at first be assumed. Methods, well that's one thing, and obviously an important component of the means of gaining knowledge. Philosophy, too, especially in my area of work, philosophy of science and epistemology. How to think critically. How to be a scientific skeptic. How not to be deceived. Sure, all of that. But I have found, and I'm guessing that you have found, too, that the greatest obstacle we face in the pursuit of anything, knowledge included, comes in the form of weakness of character. Perhaps your weakness is procrastination or laziness. Perhaps it is fear of being ostracized or looking stupid. Perhaps it is a failure to follow through on commitments, a loss of interest once things get too hard. Maybe your weakness is an excess of ambition, such that you'd be willing to speak falsehoods or harm others in the pursuit of your own goals. A good teacher, then, is no different in kind than a good father, one who wants what is best for his children. A good father does not seek to protect his children from suffering and hardship. He seeks to equip them with the capacity and courage to persevere. It's a great responsibility, but it brings its own reward. The least I can do for my students is supply them with knowledge and a good grade. The most I can do is to help them become heroes, to be a presence that makes it possible for students to be better human beings, better than they might otherwise be, so that they might be a valuable presence in the world to come. Today's episode is on the sense of presence. You see how subtle and smart a transition that was? That's the kind of professionalism I'm capable of. I should go check out front, because if there is any rationality and justice in this world, my mailbox must be buckling under the weight of job offers from Harvard. They're going to need to hire a second driver on my route to accommodate the kind of high-level correspondence I'll be bringing in. In his book Metazoa, Peter Godfrey Smith has a chapter called The Origin of Subjects. He writes, quote, The idea of a sense of presence plays an uncertain role on the margins of recent discussions of experience. Sometimes it is just an evocative word attached to vague hopes. Presence is said to be the feeling of your being real and present in a scene. It's quite difficult to fill this idea out, but a good way to see what it might contribute is by looking at contrasts, at views that are entirely different. A few pages back, I talked about the idea that all experience is a matter of perceiving things, registering what is going on. Some people who accept this also believe a view that is known as transparency. This is the idea that in an experience we are never aware of ourself, or of our experiencing, but only of things put before us. Experience is transparent, and we see the world, including our bodies, through it. Related ideas are sometimes presented by people writing about meditation, claiming that meditation reveals the unexpected absence of the self. If this transparency view is right, then conscious experience always points towards something else, and consciousness itself is no more than this pointing, or representation. Transparency is an example of a self-erasing tendency in many views of experience. The idea of presence pushes back against this approach, against the idea of the subject as a mere medium or vessel. The self is not the topic, the focus of most everyday experience, but neither does it vanish, at least for some of us. 
The feeling of presence in a scene is an important part of experience. What is this feeling, though? Once presence is recognized, it is tempting to see it as an automatic feature of just being a living organism located in the world." Unquote. To understand what the author means by presence, listen to a passage John Searle wrote in an article which Godfrey Smith relates in the book. Quote, Imagine that you wake from a dreamless sleep in a completely dark room. So far, you have no coherent stream of thought and almost no perceptual stimulus. Save for the pressure of your body on the bed and the sense of the covers on top of your body, you are receiving no outside sensory stimuli. All the same, there must be a difference in your brain between the state of minimal wakefulness you are now in and the state of unconsciousness you were in before. The state of wakefulness is basal, or background consciousness." Unquote. Godfrey Smith pursues the origins of the mind from an evolutionary perspective. It is tempting to imagine what it must be like to be a simpler life form, even a tree or a sponge. Like there must be a sense of embodied here-ness, even if there are not memories and thoughts and spatial perceptions. Of course, it could be the case, and I think it almost certainly is, that there is no more mind and sense of presence in a sponge than there is in a block of salt. One follows the evolutionary pathway from sedentary organisms through arthropods and mollusks and fishes and begins to wonder, with more relatability, whether there is reason to believe such creatures might be conscious. For Godfrey Smith, I think the capacity shown by an organism to distinguish between its own body and place and those of other things, the subject-object distinction, implies or at least suggests subjectivity. I remain agnostic on the consciousness of crabs and snails and trapdoor spiders, but the subject here, more precisely, is the felt presence of being a conscious human. It is my belief that the temporally integrated causality landscape, TICL, can shed light on the sense of presence as described here. The key concept is time. On previous occasions, I have related the following five characteristics of human consciousness. I have said that 1. Human consciousness is a unified composition of contents. 2. The contents are specific and meaningful. And they, 3, exist from a point of view. 4. Human consciousness is continuous in time. 5. It is limited and coherent. On other occasions, I have made the claim that the contents of consciousness are intrinsic to consciousness itself. Consciousness, I have said, is not intrinsic to itself. I routinely describe consciousness as a point of view upon content, or as a vessel. The idea of felt presence as a basal kind of consciousness, or consciousness without content, would seem to go against my position. That's true. It does go against my position. I reject contentless consciousness on the grounds that it is indistinguishable from non-consciousness. If it can be distinguished, as in waking from a dreamless sleep in a dark room, then there must be content. Searle gave the examples of pressure on the body and a sense of the covers. I'm not referring to that kind of blatant sensory content, though. I think you could go all the way to sensory deprivation, fully achieved, and there would still be an obvious distinction between non-consciousness and wakefulness. The content comes in the form of the passage of time. Let's define presence as a sense of the present moment. That seems appropriate. The present moment isn't content, so how is it being perceived? Or more precisely, what is being perceived that indicates the passage of time? For this, we will need a nice thought experiment. A person is subjected to laboratory conditions which guarantee a lack of stimulation from the environment outside of the body. 
Since this is a thought experiment, we don't have to explain how we will establish the absence of sound and other sensations, but just think of something like a sensory deprivation tank which perfectly eliminates external stimulation. Throughout the experiment, the person's cortical EEG is being recorded. This will provide a distinction between waking and deep sleep conditions. These conditions are to be compared with the reported experience of the subject. The subject in the study is instructed to remain calm and quiet, to rest and relax, fall asleep or wake up as naturally occurs, and the study goes on for however much time it takes. After five minutes of registered wakeful EEG, which is simple enough to see using current technology, the researchers break silence by asking the subject to describe what they have been going through. In favor of the idea of presence, as Godfrey, uh, Godfrey Smith described it, we should expect that the person in the deprivation tank has been conscious, and he or she recognizes it. I was just thinking about such and such, she might say, or I was just relaxing and noticing the shape of my body in space or perhaps even something stranger, like I was focusing on my body and noticed that in the absence of stimulation, its shape becomes less clear to me. I imagine that my legs were growing longer or shorter, or I was watching the shimmering sparkles that occupy my visual field in the darkness. What do all of these reports implicitly have in common? The passage of time, change occurring in time. Regardless of the subtlety of content, the experience of the present is dynamic. Try this. Lie down in a quiet room and relax. Then turn your focus to your feet. They're just lying there, right? Pay close attention. If you do this, you will notice that the sensation of your feet resting in space is not a single persistent sense. Rather, there is a tingling or vibration, a rapid fluctuation of pressure, and you might notice a pulsating feeling. This seems to me to be a clue about the nature of perception. It occurs as change in time. If it weren't, then I don't think it could be perceived. The perception is a sense of some, something which differs or fluctuates from the background. The TICL makes sense of this as follows. A large portion of the thalamocortical brain achieves a rapid state of integrated cause and effect in the form of neuronal communication when it is stimulated to wakefulness by the reticular formation in the brainstem. This registers on EEG as fast asynchronous firing activity across the cortex. According to the TICL, this large constituency forms a physical system. Causality spreads throughout the system in a multitude of directions. Each neuronal element of the system is sending out and receiving influence. It is both a cause and an effect in the system. Cause and effect are a way of describing the unfolding of events in time. A slice of time having zero duration will have zero integration, no cause, and no effect. A slice of time like 50 milliseconds will enable a measure of cause and effect, but not enough for the existence of the system. The system requires some amount of time for all of its elements to interact with all of its other elements, and this occurs in an ongoing way as a state of the system. The amount of time required, the sort of window over which the system exists, is an empirical matter. But from where we stand, the best we can do is estimate. Let's say that the system exists, bridging a duration of 500 milliseconds. It could be more than that or less. However, it is not zero, and it is not something as small as 50 milliseconds. 
It's at least hundreds of milliseconds. For the TICL, contents are experienced within the system when some of its constituent elements achieve integration of causality which is higher in magnitude and shorter in duration than the system as a whole. Thus, a subsystem of activity has risen above the background and done so within the temporal bounds of the system which experiences it. It is plausible that certain drugs might extend or shrink the temporal bounds of the system and might increase or decrease the level of integrated causality. If you lie still upon your back and notice the sensations of your feet as I previously instructed, you will be experiencing the dynamics of one or more subsystems as their integrated causality flutters up and down relative to the integrated causality of the system. This produces a fluctuating signal. The signal must fluctuate such that it can be registered within the temporal domain of the system. A slow pulsing might be felt, in which the subsystem being experienced is coming into existence, then falling back to background, then coming in its time back into existence. Alternatively, or perhaps in addition, a rapid vibration might be felt to occur at a much higher frequency. If neither happens, then you do not feel your feet. I actually find this exercise quite pleasant. If I've been on my feet for a long time after, say, jogging, then it's that much more pleasant. There is a kind of agreeable buzzing of the feet. It's like a subtle, natural massage. Switching modalities for the sake of illustration, close your eyes and witness the field of darkness. You will observe that it is not at all a still background of solid blackness, even if you undertake this exercise in a totally dark place. On the contrary, the visual field is busy with shimmering flashes and waves of contrast. If you continue this experiment for several minutes, you may at times notice that there were periods in which you became unaware of the visual field. It wasn't black, it simply wasn't present. This sometimes occurs when the mind wanders off on more interesting adventures. That non-existence is the background of the visual world. Nothing, not even blackness. I suggest these exercises in order to make a point about the sense of presence to which Godfrey Smith referred. By extension of the reasoning I've been applying, a sensation like pain should follow the same rules. It seems to me that it does. When we have an aching pain, it seems to persist not as a continuous thing, but as a throbbing, pulsing thing which repeats. Likewise, for a stinging pain or a burn, there is something renewing about the pain, a kind of frequency of pain in which a pinch or sting is high frequency and an ache is low frequency. I couldn't tell you whether this is reflected in the neural correlates of such pains. I'm just making observations about the phenomenology. The opposite of such pains is a euphoric body buzz, as some people experience with a good dose of cannabis. It might even be observed under the influence of such a drug that the sense of presence is heightened. Godfrey Smith writes, quote, A sense of thereness contributes a lot to what seems special and distinctive about experience. It is an important part of subjectivity itself. As we learn about the activities in our brains and bodies that give us that sense of thereness, we go further toward fitting experience into the biological world. Suppose a biological description is given of the workings of vision, for example. That story is told in terms of light, eyes, paths into the brain, and so on. It can often seem that this story leaves something out and does not capture how vision feels. I think that part of the reason such a story seems incompatible is the fact that the experience of seeing usually includes or accompanies a feeling of presence. That feeling of presence, soft, elusive, almost entirely in the background, is part of why seeing feels the way it does. People, 
whether philosophers, scientists, or anyone else who is reflective about these things, may have particular kinds of experience that they feel are indicative or telling about the nature of consciousness or subjectivity. Informal impressions of this kind are not trustworthy, but it is hard not to feel guided by them sometimes. For me, these indicative experiences are ones where there is a certain kind of balance in place between a feeling of my own presence and a taking in of what is going on around me. This state of mind is not self-absorbed, inward-looking, or introspective. Neither is it one that you might seem to disappear into transparency, left with just the scene itself. Instead, it involves a balance between my presence and the presence of surrounding things. This balance arises in some contexts of meditation. There is a scene plus the feeling of being part of it. That feeling is a useful corrective given the way that theories in this area, especially in philosophy, tend to either overinflate the autonomous self or erase it. People perennially tend to amplify one side and elide the other. Instead, we can see through the errors of transparency without cutting off the world outside." Unquote. The errors of transparency, he called it. I have not heard the term transparency used this way before so I'll accept his definition of it. I would strongly argue in favor of consciousness itself as transparent in this sense. There are only contents. The point of view upon all the subjective contents, that is what is really meant by consciousness. So any evidence of the body or its parts, the sense of ownership or selfhood, is composed of contents. Call them self-contents if you want. But you are not yourself. As those interventions downregulating the default mode network have shown, you are a physical system that it is like something to be. It isn't and couldn't be like the same physical system. It is like the form of all contents manifest and changing in a perceived present moment. The error I note is the distinction between the contents which correspond to the animal and those that correspond to or represent other things in the environment. From a phenomenological perspective, ultimately, the surface of my skin, the position of my limbs in space, are just as much outside of me as the visions of furniture in the room. And to make the point once again, all of this is within me. There is only inside, and with no detectors to trace the boundaries of mind, I am utterly transparent to myself. Mm -hmm.